Our text this morning is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 19. We have finally made it into the second sentence proper of the book of Ephesians after several weeks. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's Word. The Word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The Word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the Word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning at verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe, according to the working of His great might. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for His blessing upon it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that You would use Your word mightily in our lives. By the power of Your Spirit, Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes, that you would open our hearts, that you would draw us ever closer to the Savior. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned just a moment ago, apart from the introduction itself at the beginning of this letter, we have now reached sentence number two. That first sentence of the book of Ephesians covers from verses 3 to 14. It's at least three or four sentences in any translation, and in most translations, multiple paragraphs. But now we are come to a new part of chapter 1 of the book of Ephesians. Paul has just finished giving us a good dose of theology. He has told us of the greatness of our salvation, described the work of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in that salvation. And the overarching theme of that great and glorious sentence of praise is that God is sovereign. That God is in control, and specifically that He is completely in control of salvation. The challenge for us is oftentimes when we hear the doctrine of God's salvation, our response can almost be, well, then I guess there's nothing we need to do. We can just sit down and take it easy. We don't really need to pray. God's got this all under control. We don't really need to act. God is in charge. And lest we fall into that kind of way of thinking, Paul now moves from his sentence of praise of the work of a sovereign God to calling the people of God to prayer. To pray for each other. To remind us that He is praying for us. 
that prayer is something that is a part of the Christian life because God is sovereign, not in spite of it. And there are two aspects of prayer that Paul deals with in the verses before us this morning. The first aspect of prayer is an aspect of thanksgiving. That is, Paul gives his thanksgiving for the saints. The second is that Paul lifts up his petitions. He lifts up the petitions for the saints. The things that he is thankful for and the things that he knows that we need. Let's begin then by looking at Paul's thanksgiving for the saints. Now remember that Paul is praying here first and foremost for those believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who live in Ephesus at the time that he is writing this. But because this is inspired by the Holy Spirit and because it has been captured for us in Holy Scripture, this prayer of the Apostle Paul applies to you and to me as well. It is not just Paul's prayer for some men, women, and children who have long gone the way of all flesh. It is Paul's prayer for you and your life in Christ. And the first thing that Paul says is that he is thankful. He is thankful for who you are. Now Paul has just completed his praise of the work of God and he described what God had been at work doing. He described also all of the blessings that came to the people of God because of that work. And so this leads Paul directly into thinking about Christians, about the saints. If you think about it, it makes sense. He moves from considering the blessings that come to the people of God to thinking about how he can pray for the people of God. And he begins verse 15 reminding us of the great truths that we have been studying these last few weeks. He says, for this reason. So he's about to begin a prayer, and his prayer is contingent upon, dependent upon, the great truth of salvation that comes from the triune God. He prays for the saints because God has set his love upon them. He prays for the saints because they are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, because they have believed by faith in the gospel, as he described earlier. And he begins by saying, I'm thankful for who you are because you have faith. He says, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus. Now this is a good reminder to us, because the starting point of the entirety of the Christian life is here. Faith in Christ. Faith in Christ is the starting point for the believer. It does us no good to worry about actions or motivations or any of the things that surround our life as a Christian unless we first have come to the place that we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we believe upon His work, that we are born again because of His merit and work applied to us by the Holy Spirit according to the plan of God the Father. That's where everything starts. It doesn't stop there, but that's where it starts. And so you can imagine why Paul is... So thankful for this. It's almost as if you might consider the way new parents act when their child begins to take that first step or two. 
They're not exactly the prettiest steps, are they? They're not ready to run a marathon. There's still so much that's before the child. But don't tell that to mom and dad. They're beaming beyond belief. Because they know that something has started. That the child is on now a path to growing up, to moving, walking, running, taking care of themselves. And as we so often say, don't blink. Because before you know it, your children will be grown. And this is what Paul is thankful for. He's thankful for that starting point. For where the Ephesians have begun in believing on Christ. And Paul can be thankful because he knows that if they have believed upon Christ, that the Spirit is at work in their midst. That is how you see the work of the Spirit. If you wonder whether the Spirit is at work in your life or in someone else's life, ask the question, do you believe in Jesus? Who is Jesus? What has He done? And when those questions are answered according to God's word, we, get, we know that the only way that they can be answered is because the Holy Spirit is at work. There is a second thing, though, that Paul is thankful for in terms of who the saints are at Ephesus. He's not only thankful for their faith, he's thankful for their love, for your love towards all the saints. Now, what is love? For many of us, we think of love as some kind of emotion that gives us butterflies in our stomach. Love in that way can be surprisingly similar to a taco salad. But in reality, according to the Bible, love is the practical expression of the change that has been brought about by God. It's the way we see in ourselves the change that God has wrought in us. Love shows us that God has made us His own. In the evenings these past few months, we have been looking at the first letter of John the Apostle. And John tells us over and over again that if we want to know, if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, if we want to know that we belong to God, we need to look at ourselves and see the love that God gives to us. He puts it this way in 1 John 3. We know that we have passed from death unto life. How? Because we love the brothers. And then in chapter 4 he says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. It's almost as if what Paul is saying is, I am thankful for your faith. But I'm also thankful for your love because your love shows the genuineness of your faith. Because you see, love at its core is other-centered. And that is the true evidence of the change that God makes in our life. Because after all, Jesus' whole life was other-centered. Jesus ministered to others Jesus lived for others. Jesus died for others. And so if we are to love, we must be other-centered. In that great chapter in 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul describes what love is, he describes it in terms that are practical and remind us that we look away from ourselves and we focus on others. He says, love is patient 
and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. The love that Paul is thankful for in the saints is a love that focuses upon others, seeking to serve and to bless others. But Paul also reminds us that love does not discriminate. You see, it is much easier to say that we love and to show love to others that are like us, that like the things that we like that help us, that are kind toward us. But you see, Paul says, I am thankful for the love that the saints have that is indiscriminate. That is, that it is a love that is showered upon all members of Christ's body. Do you see how he says it? He says, I am thankful for your love towards all the saints. Not some, not the best, but all of them. Now imagine the breadth of the difference in the saints that Paul is speaking to at this time. He's speaking to people who have grown up in Ephesus, who maybe grew up as pagans, who are maybe ethnically Greek, but who might come from another nation, who may have traveled from the promised land, who might have a Jewish background, who might be Roman, There are all sorts of people in Ephesus. Remember, it is a commercial Mecca. It's a lot like Houston. There are people who come from all over the world to do business in Ephesus. And what Paul says is, I'm thankful that you have shown love indiscriminately to all these people. The second thing that Paul is thankful for is not just for who the saints are, but he's thankful for what binds us together. We see this again in verse 15, that he has heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus. Now remember here, it is not just faith Paul is talking about. It's not just faith in Jesus that Paul is talking about. It's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Paul is thankful that what binds us together is a common submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a common confession that Jesus is Lord. We submit to Jesus together, and that binds us together. You see, this is what brings communion to the church. As we all come closer to the cross of Jesus, we are inevitably brought closer to each other. And this is what Paul is thankful for. What keeps us together is Jesus and who He is and our submission to Him. His will is our will. His plan is our plan. And on a practical level, this is perhaps the most significant way in which we are bound together as the people of God. But there is another thing that binds us together. It grows out of our relationship with Christ. And that is the relationship that we share with each other. Our relationship with Christ brings us into a relationship with each other. 
I think of it this way. Some of you in here have siblings, brothers and sisters. Now, are you in relationship with your brothers and sisters because you woke up one morning and said, these are the neatest people on the face of the earth. I wish I could spend every waking minute with them. I'll even share my room with them. Right? No, I see some heads shaking. No. You have a relationship with your brothers and sisters because if I can put it this way, you're stuck with them. You have a relationship with them because you have a relationship with your parents. It is the relationship you have with your parents that brings you and your siblings together into a real relationship as you spend time together, as you help one another, as you encourage one another, even as you perhaps challenge one another. It is the relationship that you have with your parents that sets the parameters for your relationship with each other. And this is exactly what happens to the Christian. Because we have a relationship with Jesus, we must have a relationship with each other. It's no accident that we are brought together. We can see God's plan in saving us, but there is also a plan that God has in bringing us together with others. The Lord intends us to be a part of His family, to be a part of the body of Christ. And this is what binds us together. A third thing that binds us together is our need for each other. Paul reminds us of this even as he prays for us. You see, we need the prayers of others, don't we? We need prayers to remind us that we matter, that other people care for us, that other people desire our good. We need prayers to help us as we struggle. Because we do struggle against sin each and every day. And we need the prayers of others to remind us that God's power is greater than our difficulties. At the same time, we need to pray for others. To remind us that it is about more than us. To focus us on God's larger kingdom. Because after all, it is so easy to get caught up in our own needs. What Paul says is he's thankful. He's thankful that we are bound together as the people of God. Bound together in prayer. The third thing that Paul is thankful for is for the God that we know. He tells us we have a great God. Not just a great providing God, but a great and glorious God. He is the Father of glory, Paul says. He is glorious in who He is. And this is our God. He's also glorious in what He has done. Paul tells us that He is the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, reminding us once again of the redemption that God has brought about in Christ. Paul is thankful that we know God. But he actually desires that we know Him more. When Paul speaks of this, when he says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. What Paul is talking about there is not head knowledge. Paul is not praying or being thankful that we can rattle off a bunch of facts about God. 
Paul is praying and is thankful that we know God experientially. There is a personal recognition. It's the way in which a toddler or a baby knows his or her mother. May not know all of the facts about mom. How tall mom is, where mom was born, where mom went to school. But you put the baby in mom's arms and that baby knows mom. You can't fool the baby. You can't hand the baby to another lady. Not even grandma. The baby may love grandma, but it's not mom. That kind of experiential knowledge is what Paul wants us to have about the Lord our God. To know Him deeply and intimately. He does not want us to settle. Do not settle for the bare minimum of knowledge that you think is needed for salvation. Do not settle for just knowing the Bible. That is the truth about God. Paul wants us to have the Spirit and to know God Himself personally and to know that we are known by God. Paul is thankful for the saints. But he also lifts up prayers for the saints. He lifts up petitions to the saints because he wants even more for us than we already have. Now, we might stop and ask for a moment. How is that possible? Paul, you just went on for this really long sentence describing all of the blessings we have. We have forgiveness. We have redemption. We have adoption. We have an inheritance. We can't be any more loved or forgiven than we are now in Christ. How, Paul, can you want even more for us than that? And what Paul is saying here is he wants us to understand the blessings that we have. This is why he says in verse 18, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Paul wants us to understand the blessings we already have, and that this will be a growth and a further blessing to us. And this is why he uses this odd phrase, The eyes of your heart being enlightened. Now at first glance, none of this makes sense. Hearts don't have eyes. And eyes are opened, not enlightened. What does Paul mean here? Well, when Paul speaks of the heart, he's speaking of the very core of our being. The heart in the Bible is more than the place of emotions, which is where we have considered the heart to be. When we talk about loving someone, we can draw a heart to stand in for love, for an emotion. But in the Bible, the heart is the seat of all of our being. It is where the will is located. It is where the mind thinks. It is where the emotions are found. And what Paul says is, I want the very core of your being to have its eyes enlightened. Not opened, because we know your eyes have already been opened by the work of the Spirit but I want you to see even more. I want the lights to be turned on. Have you ever had that experience in your house or in your bedroom? You've got the lights on, on dim, and you're trying to to read something. And you have to turn the lights up. And as soon as you do, everything becomes clearer, even the fine print. 
That's what Paul wants us to know. He wants our eyes to be enlightened, to be opened up to the glory of what God has given to us. And the very first thing that he wants in front of us is the hope of the calling of God. He wants us to fully grasp the privileges that God has given to us. Now, the word hope is another word that we use in everyday parlance differently from the way the Bible uses it. You see, we use the word hope to express some kind of vague uncertainty in the future that we want to come to pass, but aren't really sure if it would. So perhaps as we begin to attend college, we say things like, I hope I can get a good job when I graduate. We don't know if we're going to graduate. We don't know with what degree we're going to graduate. We don't know where we're going to live when we graduate, but we think it would be a good thing if we had a job when we were done. Or at least that's what Dad keeps telling me. But you see, that's not how hope is used in the Bible. In the Bible, hope is an expression of something that is absolutely certain. Hope is in the future, but it is grounded in what Jesus has done. That's why the Bible talks about a living hope that we have in 1 Peter. That's why hope is is a hope that gives us full assurance in Hebrews chapter 6. You see, our hope is in the future, but it is based on a calling in the past. What God has done. So my hope doesn't depend on me. It doesn't depend on the circumstances around me. It doesn't depend on the future. It only depends on God. And what this means is, is that we can have a sure hope in a world that is increasingly hopeless. You see it all around you, don't you? So many people in the world today have absolutely no hope. They are depressed. They are confused. They're not sure where to go or what to do. And this shouldn't surprise us because the world is a very messed up place. The world is a place scarred by sin. It is fallen. But what Paul says to you is that you should take great confidence... He prays that you would be blessed by knowing that you have a sure hope because of what God has done. The second thing that Paul prays for is that we would know the blessings that come from God. He puts it this way, that we would know what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, the second thing here is the scope of God's blessings. Because, after all, something can be certain, but not very exciting, right? It's kind of like inheriting the old family car. It can be certain that you're going to get the old family car, but it's usually pretty difficult to muster up some excitement about a 10-year-old minivan, right? I had that experience myself. I certainly inherited a vehicle when I was able to drive. It just happened to be a brown LTD plus Ford wagon with rear-wheel drive in Buffalo. Not exactly a red sports car. Not something that I got excited about. You see, what Paul says is not only are the blessings that come to you certain, 
They are exciting. They are glorious blessings that have come to you. They are great blessings. And he wants you to be aware of how great they are. He calls them riches. And by riches here, this gives us a powerful image. It means blessings that do not lack anything. Blessings that we can enjoy. Blessings that are all sufficient. We don't need to wait for more to come along. We have riches in Christ. This word here for riches is the same word that Paul uses in verse 7 to describe the riches of God's grace. The overflowing, overabundant, never lacking grace of God. So it is with the blessings that come to us. And this takes us back once again to Paul's line about the enlightening of our eyes. You see, our eyes look upon things and we desire them. Have you ever had the experience of realizing that you never knew that you needed something absolutely desperately and you couldn't live without it? You had no idea it was important until you saw it. And then you couldn't live without it. That's the way our eyes work. We see something and we desire it. And what Paul is saying here is that we are to look for and to desire the spiritual riches and blessings that come to us in Christ more than earthly blessings. So let me ask you a question this morning. Are you satisfied in Christ? Now before you answer, would you be satisfied in Christ if you never got your dream job? If you weren't able to attend the school you wanted to attend? If you never were able to live in the house that you are pining after? If you never find that husband or wife that you hope comes to you? If your children never accomplish what you dream for them, are you satisfied in Christ? Because you see, that, Paul says, is where we must begin. We find our worth in the blessings that God has given to us. We find our satisfaction in Christ. The third and final thing that Paul prays for for us is that we would know the power of God. That we would know God's power. This is important because it is easy for us to be aware of our own weaknesses. We struggle with sin each and every day, don't we? Now, I may not see you struggle with sin, and you may not see me. But let me assure you, each and every one of us struggles with varying sorts of sin. It's also obvious that we can't do everything that we want to do. That we have weakness in ourselves and in our lives. And so Paul prays that we would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us. Who believe according to the working of his great might. Once again, here we see Paul piling synonyms over on top of each other, describing the power of God. It is immeasurable, it is great, it is powerful, it is a might. And Paul here wants us to get a very practical aspect from this because we need the power of God in our everyday lives. When he says, 
He would like us to know the immeasurable greatness of his power. This word here for power is unique to Paul. He's the only one that uses it in the New Testament. He uses it eight times. And it means more than just raw power. It means operative power, working power, effectual power. It's a very specific kind of word. It's power that works. It's practical in our lives. As we live the Christian life, we cannot take one step. We cannot go one hour without the power of God. But what Paul says is, he prays that we would know that we have that power. That it is ours. That we are able, not because of our own ability and might, but because of God's might. And he describes the scope of this power. It's not only great, it goes beyond great. It is immeasurable. There is nothing that we can compare it to. And Paul reminds us that it is available now. It is for us who believe. Now, Paul gets very personal here in a way that I think is very useful to you and to me. This power is available to everyone and all Christians need the power of God. Because do you notice what Paul does here in this verse 19? Since verse 15, Paul has been using second person pronouns. I've heard of your faith and your love to give thanks for you, remembering you, that God may give you the eyes of your hearts that you may know the hope that you have been called to. But now here in verse 19, when he talks about the power of God, he does something different. He says that immeasurable greatness of his power toward us. Do you see what Paul's saying? I need God's power. The Apostle Paul, the writer of half the New Testament, the planter of all of the churches, the one who is a great evangelist, the one who is an apologist extraordinaire, the one who worships the true and living Christ, he needs the power of God too. And Paul wants you to know that you need it and it is available to you in your each and individual lives. When you think you can't work through your marriage, you have the great power of God. When you think you'll never keep your family tied together, the kids are going in every single direction, and you're not sure where they will end up. The great power of God is available to you. When you're not sure that you can give it your all because you're afraid, the great power of God is available to you. You see, Paul is praying that you would know that this power is there. He doesn't even actually pray that you would have this power. Because you already have it. He wants you to know it and live based upon it. Well, how can we know all these things in conclusion? How can we experience the power of the resurrection of Christ? How can we be satisfied with our blessings in Christ? How can we know the certainty of our hope in Christ? We know it by knowing God. Not by knowing about God. 
but by knowing God. By spending time with God. You see, this is Paul's prayer for God's people. That they would know the true and living God. And in the building up and expansion of that relationship, they would know all of the blessings and provisions that God has provided. That in the end we realize that we have the power of God. That we have a relationship with God. That we have certainty. But so much more than that, we have God Himself in Christ. And that that will never be taken away from us. And that in that we can have hope. In that we can have purpose. And in that we can be encouraged to pray that others would know these same things. And that they would be glorified in the work of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning that you have spoken to us by your word. We thank you, O Lord, for the provision of the Lord Jesus Christ, for binding us to each other, for drawing us to you, O Lord, for giving us the blessings that you have. Lord, we ask that you would work out our faith and our love in our lives. All to your glory. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen.